welcome back to the Time Dad Podcast with your host, Taylor. It's another Friday. I just want to lay in bed all day. I don't want to do anything. It's rainy. It's muggy. It's disgusting out. And I'm just here. I'm just drinking wine. I'm just hanging out because I don't know what else to do. I hope everyone else is having a good Friday. That's all I'm saying. In Boston, it's not so much of a good Friday. But that's okay. After this, I'm going to watch a couple of Netflix documentaries probably. We'll see some true crime. I don't know yet. It's going to be an interesting Friday. But besides that, I also wanted to mention that I tried one of those Beyond Meat burgers and they were actually pretty damn good. They did smell like dog food though. That was the only problem. But other than that, it was actually really good, especially with fries. But then again, you can't really fuck anything up when you have fries. So today I wanted to talk about the Carlos de Luna case, mainly because it was something that was on my radar earlier this week, kind of like just stumbled upon it because this documentary did come out July 2nd. So it's a very recent documentary and the New York Times actually did a whole review on it that made uh, made it onto my timeline and I was reading it and I was like oh wow this is this is kind of fucking crazy so I decided that I wanted to talk about this case I kind of wanted to dive into it I watched the documentary I thought the documentary was pretty good there was some parts that like they kind of jumped but that's fine I'm not gonna hold it against anyone I really wanted to talk about this case because it has to do with accusations of a wrongful execution my favorite fucking topic it's something i'm very passionate about i i have this whole text vent to my boyfriend today about how much these types of cases piss me off and i don't want to piss anyone else off but i also think that if you are affected by this case it does help to start looking into these other cases looking into what's going on in our country and kind of determining whether or not we're fit to have the death penalty. Obviously, this being my podcast, me relying on talking about the death penalty, I also am in this position where I don't believe we should have one, especially cases like this make it very hard for me to still support the death penalty. And you'll see why in a little bit. But let's go into this case. Let's talk about what happened and where we're going from here. So on February 4th, 1983, Wanda Lopez was working a night shift at the Sigmore Shamrock. And this was a gas station in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is one of the smaller cities in Texas. She worked in a very dangerous part of the city. It was around 8 p.m. So it was very dark out, especially for February. And she was a little nervous because she was told that there was a man outside that was wielding a knife. She called... 911 because she was nervous and reported the suspicious person to the police. Now she's on this phone call with the police. All of a sudden her attacker comes in. She's being very quiet. She's trying not to make it seem like she's on the phone with the cops. After that, the man, it seems like they have this dispute about money and she's trying to give him money. All of a sudden you hear screaming, like guttural. Uh, Later on, we we find out that she was attacked and she was killed by this mysterious person. The person stabbed her twice in the chest. And here's a clip from ABC News. And the clip kind of 
goes into more detail about the phone conversation, so you're going to hear the phone call. What's he doing with a knife? Minutes later, Wanda Lopez calls 911 again. You want it? Okay, I'll give it to you. I'm not going to do nothing to him. 2602 Now, in this phone call, Lopez seems like she's giving her attacker the money at the time that she was stabbed. And also from two eyewitness accounts, we get a better picture of what actually was going on. One man, his name was Kevon Baker. <laughs> he spells his name with an A, and I think that's like so fucking stupid. And I don't mean to be mean to this man, but later on you're going to... Like, he's an idiot, but, like, right now, I shouldn't be mean. But he spells his name K-E-V-A-N. Kevon. I know his parents probably named him that, but still. It's kind of stupid. Now, he said that the man that was at the gas station was unshaven. He wore a flannel shirt. And he was struggling with Lopez. Like, he was grabbing her hair and tried to take her to the back of the store. Not only that, but he mentioned that the man threatened Baker with a gun. And this is why Baker didn't step in to try to resolve the situation. Another man there who actually was the one who told Lopez that there was a man outside wielding a weapon. His name was George Aguirre. Aguirre? I, I don't know how to say that. So he stopped for gas around 8 p.m. And he said that the man was wearing blue pants, a long sleeve t-shirt. But then it also kind of gets a little murky. And he says that it was dark pants and a white shirt with sleeves rolled up. So, it's really weird. No one really knows. Uh, he said that the man was drinking beer and playing with a knife. And he kind of drives off, but then he comes back around after the attack and he stays to talk to police. So then later on, we also get another eyewitness account. This one is from a couple that is going to a local club and they're in like the parking lot. And the couple's name is John and Julie Arosuaga. I think that's what their name is. And they say that they saw a Hispanic man jogging away from the shamrock. He was wearing an untucked white shirt in uniform style pants. So there's obviously a little bit of inconsistency with some of these eyewitness accounts. I really don't think I can hold it against our eyewitnesses here, right? Because in the fit of the moment, when you find out that someone just died, I think, like, especially if you're there during the attack, your adrenaline's really up. You're not really paying attention to the m minor details. It's mainly, like, these big picture things. I more so blame prosecution for only using eyewitness accounts and the case for letting it, or the courts for letting it go through. I know that that's kind of also unfair to blame, but... I'm gonna, I, I'm blaming someone. When police were gathering information about the suspect, they already were doing their manhunt. So we had cops going in, they basically had two manhunts going on here. And from the descriptions given, Baker's description, he said that the man was wearing a light colored shirt and dark pants. He was dressed shabbily. And then he goes on to say that he was wearing a flannel shirt under a gray sweatshirt. And then reported that he had a mustache with approximately 10 days worth of growth in his beard. Now, the Arosagas say that the man that was jogging away from the store was wearing a white dress shirt with the sleeves rolled up, an untucked and uniform type pants, and that he was clean shaven. Now, and then you have Aguirre 
That's saying that the man was wearing a white shirt, untucked, and dark pants. The police initially were advised that the suspect was running northbound on foot, but then they kind of stopped that chase because they had another suspect that a neighbor had called in that was hiding under their truck. And so all the cops, instead of going after the guy that's going north on foot, they go after this new guy that's underneath a truck hiding. And the person that they find, that's Carlos, that's Carlos de Luna. And he wasn't wearing a shirt, he didn't have shoes, and he was lying under a puddle of water under the truck. Now, on his person, they found $149 in his front pocket, and all these bills were kind of rolled up, and kind of like, why were they messily put there? So that was kind of weird. And so they took the Luna back to the Shamrock so that he can be identified by the eyewitnesses, and Baker was able to identify him. But later on in an interview, he said that it was when he saw the Luna, he was like, I was like... 70% sure that it was him and I'm actually gonna play the clip of the interview right now just so you can hear how he says it how how certain were you that night probably 70% it was it wasn't 50 50 it was more but I will say this um, one of the police officers did mention me we found this guy hiding underneath the car without a shirt on Two blocks north of us. If they had not said that, would you be less than 70% sure? Yes. About where would you say you'd be if they hadn't said that? It would have been a 50-50. Now, De Luna, at the time of his arrest, he was unshaven, and he actually had fresh, fresh scratches under his right arm. I honestly can't go into much more detail about the scratches because I don't really get anything else from them, but I just want to mention it. Anyway, moving forward... Both in the documentary and then in the news that I was reading, the Shamrock area manager, or at least the management of the Shamrock, was interviewed. Now, in what I read, the Shamrock's area manager was interviewed, and his name was Pete Gonzalez. And he testified that approximately $166 were missing from the register at the time since his last inventory. And he said that typically the register was off by 20 or $50. So $166 was definitely a large amount. But later on, we meet the store manager at the time, whose name is De- Jeff Stange. And I think he was also the one who was interviewed in the documentary. He told investigators that Gonzalez's testimony was wrong. He said that The inventory being short of $166 was not unusual and that there was likely only $75 in the cash register at the time that Lopez was at the cash register because that's store policy. And he also recalled that only between $70 to $134 were missing from inventory. Now, I don't know how strong of a case that is, but it does show what inconsistencies that the police were dealing with at the time, and also what inconsistencies the police weren't picking up on. So during the initial trial, there were two lawyers that were appointed to represent De Luna. There was Hector De Pena Jr. and then Jimmy Lawrence. Now, I think De Pena, it was, it was because he wasn't as skilled, I'm guessing, from what I remember reading, um... 
kind of got on the case because of uh, someone he knew where Jimmy Lawrence, he was more skilled and he was the one who kind of brought up the opening statement, the closing statement, and I think also interviewing witnesses and that stuff. They did not have a strong case. (laughs) I think that's clear from the get-go, but it gets worse as we talk about it more. First, and they did, and he did mention this in the documentary too, that eyewitness statements, especially for defense, do not work. Like, you will not have a strong case with just eyewitness statements. So it also didn't look good for De Luna because Baker and Aguirre, they both identified him as the man who had killed Lopez. So it didn't work. And not only that, but they played the 911 call at the trial. And this was a very emotional call, obviously. She's stabbed. She's being attacked during the call prosecution just ate this up they were able to take these eyewitness accounts and then also take this 911 call and work with it where the defense they practically had nothing but DeLuna also fucked up his own trial by testifying his team was like don't testify you're gonna ruin everything they're gonna find out that you have some felony charges he actually was charged I think it was two years for attempted rape so he had felony charges against him but not only that he told the jury that he spent the early evening with sisters Mary Ann and Linda Perales but he ran into a man named Carlos Hernandez right before he was going out to a local bar called Wolfie's now Hernandez he was also going to Wolfie's so they all went over and I guess Wolfie's is right across the street from the Shamrock Hernandez was like, oh, well, I'm going to go get something from the Shamrock. I'll be back. And Deluna was wondering what was taking Hernandez so long because I'm guessing it was like a very long time after Hernandez left. So Deluna decides that he's going to go over. As he's going over, he witnesses the attack, hearing the sirens and just seeing what was going on. He got so scared that he ran away instead of doing anything else. Now, in cross-examination, DeLuna was asked about the white shirt and shoes, and these were later found on a neighbor's property, and they were examined and everything, and he testified that those weren't his. And then he also admitted about his felonies, and that he lied to the psychiatrist that examined him before the trial. Now, this doesn't look good, right? He was unsuccessful in identifying Hernandez from a lineup that the police put together. So now the prosecution is kind of painting this picture that De Luna is lying about everything, that he's being delusional, that Carlos Hernandez is a phantom, that he doesn't exist. And the prosecution now offers this rebuttal evidence and Mary Ann Perales comes up to the stand, one of the girls that De Luna said that he was with that night, and she says that she was not out that night, but in fact, she was attending her baby shower, her baby shower, at the time of the incident. She was seven months pregnant, going to a bar. So, De Luna lied about that. He also lied about his whereabouts to his patrol officer that afternoon. And then on top of it, DeLuna frequented the casino club, and I forgot to mention this earlier, but George Aguiar had mentioned that the mysterious man who 
killed Lopez, asked him to take him to the casino club earlier that day. He said, I'll pay you money. Take me there. But obviously, George was like, no, I'm not. I'm not going to take you there. So this is also mentioned as well. So now after four and a half hours of deliberating, the jury convicted De Luna of capital murder. Here's where things get a little bit fishy, right? Because he did mention, De Luna did mention that he was a convicted felon, but the prosecution introduces the evidence that De Luna had committed two attempted rapes. And at this point, De Luna literally can plead guilty right? He can plead guilty. He can go and take his life sentence. There's actually possibility for parole from what prosecution said in the documentary, but DeLuna was adamant that he was innocent. And here's a clip from ABC News where DeLuna talks about his innocence. But he doesn't feel he should die for something he didn't do. I just wish, you know, people would do something about, about it and look for somebody, look for that person, I mean, and do something about it. Now, with this plead of innocence, the jury goes back into deliberation, and this takes about six hours, and they decide that DeLuna is likely to re-offend, and they sentence him to death. After the trial, both of DeLuna's attorneys kind of have these speculations. De Pena thinks that Hernandez and DeLuna were robbing the store together, and that DeLuna was afraid to identify Hernandez before because of the possibility of being hurt in jail for being a snitch. DeLuna's other attorney thinks that DeLuna wasn't able to identify Hernandez from photos and believes that DeLuna is guilty to some degree. So both of them really did not have confidence in DeLuna at all. And part of that makes sense to me because he literally lied to his attorneys But also, you didn't really put up a good fight. And in the documentary, one of his lawyers, I think it's De Pena, he gets really pissed when someone kind of calls him out for the job he did in DeLuna's case. And he's like, well, you know what? Sometimes uh, the, the guilty also has to look at themselves as well. And he tried to, like, make this case that it wasn't all supposed to fall on him just because he was a lawyer. But you're also the one representing him, Depenya. Get over it. But anyway, time goes on and De Luna is executed. He exa- he exhausts all of his appeals. And, and by December 7th of 1989, De Luna is executed by lethal injection. I think it's around midnight, too, that he's executed. In the documentary, it's very emotional. A lot of people are crying. A lot of people are saddened by this, which makes sense. Um, You see his brother kind of thinking about what he could have done. One of the reporters at the time is crying about it because she used to get letters from him all the time. And everyone kind of realizes that maybe he didn't do it. Right? So that's kind of where the first questioning comes in 1989 after his death. But it's not until 2006 that we're actually seeing these questions come into play. And the Chicago Tribune publishes an investigative series that examines De Luna's case. They found that there were some errors that led to a possible wrongful execution. 
more people are starting to realize that there's something wrong, but it isn't until Columbia University law professor James Liebman and his law students dig into DeLuna's case years later. Now, they did this six-year breakdown of his case, and in 2012, Columbia Human Rights Law Review publishes this 430-page report. Now, this is massive. In this research, Liebman and his team found that the police had not investigated Hernandez at all for the murder. And during the trial, he named him, like they named him the Phantom because DeLuna could not properly identify him. Not only this, but the police didn't look into these inconsistencies. They didn't really do a lot of digging. And there was actually these crime photos that resurfaced that showed that the police were actually kind of contaminating the crime scene. There's a photo of one cop actually stepping in the blood of Loba. Like, they're literally contaminating the scene because they're just done with it. No one actually took the time and effort to actually try to figure out what was going on. Going back to Hernandez, he was well known to the police. That He was actually on their radar for a couple years, even before... Lopez's murder. Now, who is Hernandez? That's a good question. He was a career criminal, and he had a history of assaulting women, robbing gas stations, and carrying weapons, especially knives. Now, if that doesn't seem like the person who actually killed Lopez, I don't think I know who it is. And Hernandez actually killed another woman years prior, Dahlia Saceda, and he was actually almost charged for it but then another man got got in between that I I don't know how this happened Hernandez kind of got away with this murder too and it wasn't until he assaulted Dina Yabanez that he was actually put into jail something else that I wanted to note about this is that Hernandez was never seen as a suspect in De Luna's case, right? Why was that? And I wanted to bring up this clip from PBS NewsHour that actually does a good job summarizing that. When he was in jail, Carlos De Luna told people he was afraid to finger Carlos Hernandez for fear of retaliation. But if Carlos Hernandez was a criminal already well-known to local law enforcement, convicted and charged with many violent crimes, why wasn't he a suspect already? Well, that's hard to tell. We know, actually, that the, he was a suspect in this murder. The police reports that we uncovered 20 years later showed that the police had actually focused on him within two months of the crime. We found his rap sheet, uh, Carlos Hernandez's rap sheet, uh, in the district attorney's file dated in May. The trial was later in July, which was the first time that Carlos de Luna had said uh, to the prosecutors that it was Carlos Hernandez, but they already knew about him. And uh, the police had actually picked up the fact that Carlos Hernandez was confessing to the crime in the neighborhoods of uh, Corpus Christi. A lot of people heard it, but the police heard it as well. Now, Liebman's report goes on to mention that numerous times where Hernandez was arrested, he was in possession of a knife similar to one that killed Lopez. Now, there's so much more that I could bring up about Hernandez, but going back to De Luna, 
There's no physical evidence on him that matches what happened at the crime scene. There was no blood on him, no microscopic evidence that could be tested, nothing of the like. And yet he was the one who was taken in and questioned and and no one even questioned why he was there, right? So with this report coming out, uh, it raised a lot of questions about what was going on and probably also led to why this documentary was made. But in 2006, when the Chicago Tribune investigative piece came out, Lopez's brother actually told reporters, quote unquote, after carefully reviewing the information recently uncovered and printed by Steve Millis and Maurice Posley in the Chicago Tribune, I am convinced that Carlos de Luna did not kill my sister and that Carlos Hernandez was the real murderer. Now, one more thing I want to mention is that the police didn't even go to any means to try to figure out if Carlos Hernandez had killed Lopez. What they could have done was go into his neighborhood like the investigator for the Columbia Law Professor did. They could have gone into his neighborhood and asked around. Right away, when that, in- when that investigator went into that neighborhood, one woman came in. She's like, yep, I know that man. I know what he did. And then they got a bunch of different interviews that way. Just by asking. The cops didn't even question the different types of eyewitness accounts they were getting the flannel and the sweatshirt the white rolled up shirt in the documentary one of the cops that was there he was just like well in the moment you know you're not thinking about the fact that they're two different men that you're being giving descriptions of well okay that's fine but also you can go back to that you have that recording you have those eyewitness testimonies you can see clearly that you have two different descriptions One of a man in a flannel and a sweatshirt. The other of a man with a white rolled up shirt. There's two different men there. One that's shaven, one that's not. Like these things piss me off. De Luna had no blood on him. Hernandez was bragging about it. Hernandez was on the radar of the cops. Why wasn't he even thought about he was known to, to threaten people with knives. He was known to assault women. He was known to rob fucking gas stations. What, like, why did no one say anything? And why, when De Luna brought him up, did everyone say, oh, you're crazy? I don't understand. Sad, but also happy news. Hernandez actually died in prison. He was in prison because Dina Yabant Yabant. Dina Yabianez, I think I said that name right, she she got him in jail for assaulting her. And he died in jail due in, I think it was in 1999, due to cirrhosis. Which is, like, great, but also, like, another man fucking died because of a murder you did. And he was bragging about it, too. He was bragging about the fact that he killed him and that DeLuna took the fall for it. Like, you're an asshole. You're a terrible human being. But I remember near the end of this documentary, it kind of made me think about why this case went the way it did. And it wasn't even just because 
De Luna was a minority, right? When Wanda Lopez was also a minority. She was a mother. She was Hispanic. And they probably, the police probably were like, oh, it was Hispanic on Hispanic crime. Call it a day. Whatever. You got the guy. It's over. Let's call it a day. And that's what they probably did. They probably didn't care about it as much because it wasn't like it was a white woman who got killed, right? And I don't want, you know, I know that's a speculation, but at the same time, it's something we see so often, right? There, there's stats that are based off of this information. You, you can find it on the Death Penalty Information Center. You can find it probably on CNN. You can find it on any huge news source. You'll find this data that shows the discrepancies between race, murder, and the justice um, that's given to these victims depending on their race and who murdered them. And Wanda Lopez and Carlos de Luna both were given this injustice because of their race. Now, I think this is a really interesting case. I think it's interesting mainly because Carlos de Luna and Carlos Hernandez, one, they share the same name. They also look the same. And I don't think you can really have a case like this ever again and if you do it's very rare but it's one that will probably keep me up a lot just thinking about the fact that us as a country let that happen I think is messed up and it pisses me off all the time so with that being said I hope you guys enjoyed this episode I'm really pissed now but it was fun to talk about. It was fun to watch that documentary. I thought that documentary was really great. And I hope you guys get to watch it. Leave a comment on this episode. Tell me what you thought about it. And I'll see you guys next week. I don't know what I'm going to talk about next week. No, oh, Maybe it'll be another documentary. Maybe I'm just going to do documentaries from now on. Because they're so fun. Even though I really didn't cite the documentary at all in this. But whatever. Anyway, you know where to find me on social media. Everything is at Time of Death Pod. I just made a TikTok. I haven't posted on there yet. We'll see. I'm not really sure. Other than that, leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcast and stay tuned for my next episode. I love you guys so much. (laughs) 